Welcome to the Bend Don't Break podcast. I am Aaron Schweitzer, your host, along with Central Oregon's most grounded reporter, Laurel Bronze. This podcast is powered by the Source Weekly, Ben's locally owned newspaper. Our guest today is Peter Sparks. He is the professor of psychology at OSU Cascades. He has a dual major in biochemistry and psychology from Michigan State and a PhD from New York University. Over the last few years, Peter's developed a reputation as a great resource for people interested in learning more about psychedelics. He's led a number of workshops that explore society's changing attitudes towards these drugs and how psychedelics have been used both therapeutically and recreationally through history. We wanted to have Peter on today in light of measure 109, which is on the general election ballot that all of you hopefully receive now. Uh, if, If passed by voters, it would legalize the use of psilocybin in a clinical setting. It would make Oregon the first state to allow some legal use of the drugs. And for full disclosure, our source editorial board endorsed Measure 109. So this is a somewhat timely interview. Uh, so Peter, it sounds like you've been studying the mind-body connection for most of your career. How did you get involved in this branch of study? And what led you here? So um, I think I was, I've always been sort of interested in drugs. Um, I blame it all on the classes I took uh, in the elementary school that were trying to teach me uh, how bad drugs were back in the seventies. <laughs> um, I, and I did learn back then that, you know, tobacco is a bad thing. And uh, I would harass my mom who used to smoke back then to try and get her to stop smoking. Uh, but for some reason I was always sort of fascinated with these other weird drugs like LSD. Um, and so when I got into undergrad and I was kind of trying to figure out what I wanted to do, I, I s- still carried a lot of those interests with me into undergrad. And, um, and it was really this sort of moment where, you know, to be honest, I started meeting people that actually done LSD and the way they would talk about it and the things that they would say would happen while they were on it, uh, became really fascinating to me as a biochemistry major. I knew a lot about molecular structure, but the question of how do these molecules do all of these sort of mentalistic, um, things was was a fascinating question to me sure um, and then I um, that's when I started getting into brains and wanting to understand brains um, and so my pathway was sort of um, more along the lines of I wanted to understand how brains really worked and then I could understand how drugs might affect them and that's I thought for a moment there I thought you were going to say that your mother's reading Alice in Wonderland to you yeah. prior to <laughs> bedtime might have had some influence, but uh. yeah, Hunter S. Thompson was her favorite author. No, <laughs> and she joking. smoked cigarettes all the time. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, Peter, could you describe for us what psilocybin is and how it differs from LSD, and or, or, or and maybe talk a little bit more about hallucinogenics in general and how they how they work. Yeah, that's really important to understand. Uh, when I was an undergrad and, and in high school and I was thinking about hallucinogens, LSD was literally the only molecule that ever came up uh, in conversation. Um, since then, what, we, what I learned and what we know is that there are actually a huge number of molecules out there in nature or made in factories that can create hallucinatory states. And so LSD and psilocybin, these are only one of a whole broad range of molecules that can do this. And so I think people need to be careful when they talk about hallucinogens, 
there's a wide variety of what they could possibly be talking about specifically. Sure. So um, psilocybin is a molecule that is uh, naturally made by certain fungi um, and um, these psychedelic mushrooms. And these mushrooms are actually found all throughout the world. There's a lot of different places around the world that these are indigenous to. Um, LSD is a little bit different. LSD is a synthetic molecule and is based on a molecule that was found in an ergot fungus. Uh, but they took that molecule in the ergot fungus and then tweaked it in the uh, factory uh, and created or synthesized the LSD molecule from it. Is there any, is there any um, rationale or support for people who like all things organic versus things that are synthetic, um, you know, mushrooms over tabs, you know, is that a yeah. battle in your world? So generally, no. I mean, a molecule is a molecule is a molecule. Um, it doesn't matter whether nature made it or it was made in the factory. Uh, nature certainly makes a lot of molecules via plants and animals that are extraordinarily toxic and bad for us. Um, and, and, you know, so, and so do people and so do people. Right. So <laughs> it's not that kind of a distinction, I think is, um, uh, kind of a, a missed way of looking at it because at the bottom line, when you eat something natural and digest it, it's just all molecules that are interacting with the neurons of your brain. Yeah, because that was always how uh, my high school classmates would sell the difference. Right. Oh, this is way more organic, softer, much better. Right. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, it's the in early, terms of the early huh? teen marketing strategies. Exactly. Right. <laughs> um, can you tell us a little bit about the benefits of psychedelics, mental, spiritual, emotional? Um, so, uh, before I say, before I start off and talk about a little bit about the research, um, I think it's always really important to understand that the amount of research that's been done on these, um, specifically LSD and psilocybin is very small. Um, the amount of research that's coming out every year, uh, increases dramatically because there's Within just the last couple of years, there's a dramatic increase in interest in this. Um, but, but we should always remember that the amount of research that actually is out there is on the level of hundreds of articles, not thousands of articles. And um, so as a cautious scientist, I will always end everything with the data is interesting, <laughs> but we need more research, right? And that is absolutely true is, um, the data is really interesting and we definitely need a lot more research on it. Um, but some of the stuff that's coming out right now is, is really interesting in terms of using um, um, psilocybin and, and LSD as a therapeutic device. Um, a lot, some people have been using it for anxiety issues. Some people have been investigated in terms of a treatment for depression uh, there's some research on using it as a treatment for OCD, as well as um, uh, addiction, substance abuse addiction um, to alcohol or, or nicotine. And, so and oh, yeah, go ahead. 
Well, I was just going to say, like, are there dangers to it, too? Or is a lot of that just myths? Um, so there. So when you talk about dangers, um, you know, immediately one of the, the things that we think about with any kind of drug is toxicity. Right. So if I use it once, is it going to damage my tissues or create some sort of uh, long lasting effects? And in terms of toxicity, um, the, the general consensus right now is that the toxicity is actually quite low uh, in terms of damaging your organs and glands. That seems to be pretty low in terms of um, overdosing um, and, and dying from it. Um, that seems to be pretty low as well. Um, there's a concept that we have called the therapeutic index, which is sort of a ratio of how much does it take to kill you versus how much does it take to get the effects that you want. And the therapeutic and the, the distance between those two is, is huge for uh, psilocybin. So the typical doses that people take are nowhere close to the levels it would take um, to kill you. Um, I read one article and they said, you basically have to eat your body weight in mushrooms uh, for it to lead to that lethal dose. Um, in the history of people taking these drugs, there are people who die from ingestion. Um, most of those are people that die from accidents, falling off buildings and whatnot. Um, very, very few people die from an, a literal toxic overdose. Well, and again, I'm not challenging anybody, <laughs> right? There may very well be a level that someone can reach and, and they will die of an overdose, but well within the parameters of what people use on a recreational basis or in these studies in a therapeutic basis, um, the toxicity uh, it seems to be relatively low. Isn't, wouldn't one of the dangers of and this is, we're talking, the measure hasn't passed and um, I don't know whether it will pass, but in the current environment, wouldn't one of the dangers be that um, it's not going to kill you, but you certainly could exceed a dose that would be considered therapeutic. And that, you know, what, you know, when on, on in street use with regard to psilocybin, do you know, people don't know what level of psilocybin they're, they're taking or ingesting at any given time? Yeah, that's the biggest problem with uh, unregulated slash illegal um, substances is that because it's unregulated, you absolutely have no idea what you're doing. Um, and, and one of my, uh, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not a user of recreational drugs so much. So, uh, but I was, very, I was very supportive of the marijuana initiative a few years back. And most of it was for that safety reason. I mean, if right. people are going to use, they should know what they're getting. They should know what their, their content, so the, the concentration of the drug is. They should know that their drug isn't adulterated with other um, pesticides or anything else that people might have sprayed on those plants. Um, and, and, I, and I definitely feel strongly about that with a lot of other drugs that people might take that are deemed illegal, but people are still using them. And uh, one way of trying to make it safer, I believe, is to dis, you know, is to um, regulate them. Um, and so with psilocybin, that, that's very true. When you get a bag of mushrooms that someone sold you, uh, do you know that these are actually psilocybin mushrooms? Maybe they are something else. It's not like no one has ever been sold 
you know, criminy mushrooms from Safeway. <laughs> and oh, told that happened to I, me. No, that's <laughs> <laughs> right. But 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 it could be something else, right? Somebody could have just right. picked up some random mushroom mm. off the forest floor and said, "Oh, I'm going to sell this as psilocybin." Sure. Um, and it could actually have be toxic. So so with illegal substances, I think everybody has to be really cautious about what they're doing. In the realm of the people who are taking these kind of drugs for a spiritual experience, not necessarily a therapeutic experience, which um, would be a kind of a different classification. You, you, how do you feel about the, the um, emergence of the, the guidance counselor, the person who's going to walk you through your experience as opposed to your friends or <clears throat> other laymen? Yeah, so I think that's a really important distinction. When, when people take hallucinogens like LSD and psilocybin, um, you know, one of the negative effects that can happen is you can have a bad trip. In other words, instead of your experiencing being joyful and having a sense of awe um, or even mystical in nature, it can be completely the opposite. It can be filled with dread and fear and intense panic and anxiety. And that's what a bad trip is. Um, and so part of having somebody there that's useful is if you're having a bad trip, um, you can, some sober person can actually help you through that experience and talk you down, help you sort of understand that you're safe, that you're in control and can turn that around and start it making it to become a more pleasant experience. So that's that part. But in terms of what we're, what this ballot is interested in, is hope is helping make psilocybin more of a clinical therapeutic device for mental disorders. Mm -hmm. And in that, in that respect, then having a counselor, if that's your goal, then having a counselor that understands mental disorders, understands the, the proper therapeutic techniques, that's the person that needs to be there during your psilocybin um, um, experience. Um, in some of the research that's been done where they've shown psilocybin can reduce uh, depressive symptoms or reduce anxiety levels, some of those studies actually aren't giving people psilocybin alone. They're giving people psilocybin. They have a guidance counselor, a mental health treatment counselor that is, that is helping them internalize the experience as a therapeutic mode. And then they have therapeutic sessions afterwards. Um, so all of that combined with the psilocybin is really, it can, it has been shown to reduce anxiety and maybe even reduce the depressive symptoms. Um, so, so Peter, for listeners, what, how is it that a hallucinogenic in, in a certain dose would actually help someone's mental health condition? Yeah, it's, it's a little bit of a, um, there's a leap of faith there. Well, I mean, I think, okay, so as a scientist- Well, anytime though, you're taking a loosening, you're taking a leap of faith, but aside from Well, that, no, I would say, you know, I would say the faith I'm leaping off of is, you know, the hundreds of so or so studies that have been right. done. And, and it is starting to look really super interesting and, and supportive of the idea that some controlled, moderated use of- um, uh, psilocybin might be helpful for some people. Um, but the thing that's, that's sort of the weirdness of it is 
there's a there's a there's still a lot of people that actually are saying like, well, but LSD and, and psilocybin are actually putting people into a temporary psychotic state. Right. It's just that when they come out of it, it seems to have all of these beneficial effects that linger, which is weird and hard to understand how it happens. Um, but here's the thing that's really interesting about uh, LSD and psilocybin together is that makes it different than other kinds of uh, drugs like antidepressant medication. Uh, one is for some of these studies, it really looks like having one or two experiences with psilocybin is enough to reduce anxiety or depressive symptoms for weeks or maybe even months. So it's not something that you have to do every day. You take your, you know, like every day you might take your Prozac. Um, this is sort of like you have this one, two or three experiences in, you know, one or two week period. And then for months without any other medication, uh, you could have reduced symptoms of, of anxiety and depression. And that's, that's fascinating, right? So what that does suggest though, is that there's something about not the pharmacology of the drug, that lingers, but there's something about the experience that you get in this hallucinatory state that has lingering effects, right? Sort of like the experience of joy that you might find climbing a mountain would have lingering effects. Sure. Um, or the experience of something terrifying might have lingering effects. It's more like the experience. And, and one of the things really interesting about the research is it really does strongly suggest that the anti-anxiety and antidepressives, the effects that it has actually correlates with how mystical the experience was. So right? the more so, mystical, the better the, the better the therapeutic. Absolutely, effect. absolutely. And that's, so, that's really interesting. And that does suggest that it's much, that it may be more related to the insights that you're gaining and that feeling of interconnectedness um, with the universe um, that is something that really has an impression on you. And that's what sort of lingers, um, almost like it changes your perspective on the world and life. And that's what lingers. And that's what's related to the reduction of anxiety and depression. Fascinating. Can you give us a, just a short history of psychedelics in the U.S.? I mean, I guess for thousands of years, indigenous cultures use it. And then it was illegal and now there's a renaissance. Yeah, so, you know, all of, there's hallucinogenic plants all over the world, right? So almost every part of the world has some indigenous species and some indigenous population that ate it by accident or intent and had this uh, interesting experience. Um, I think in, in most of those cases, um, strong hallucinogens, tends to be accepted into a culture as um, something that is done um, occasionally, something that has a spiritual component to it. Uh, it enables you to contact spirits or connect with ancestors and, and, and those kinds of things. And, and I guess what I'm trying to say is, um, I, I don't know many or if not all that there's cultures that took hallucinogens were like, wow, let's do this every day or, you know, let's do it on Fridays, <laughs> Friday night, hallucinatory night, right? <laughs> um, it's, it tends to be something that is appreciated and valued by a number of cultures around the world, uh, but, but kept as we're just gonna do this on special occasions. Um, 
And even in the even in North America, there were a number of indigenous tribes that had discovered the psilocybin mushrooms and other hallucinatory things like peyote cactus and incorporated that as part of their um, ceremonies. Again, not like a daily everyday experience, right? Yeah. So um, when when you uh, when you were talking about how you got introduced to the subject and you brought a peyote, you know, my my introduction to this whole world came through the Carlos Castaneda books. I don't know if you're familiar right. with those and the yeah. peyote culture around there. I can remember my parents looking in horror as I found <laughs> these books in their library. <laughs> they didn't right, really right, right. No, remember were there otherwise. But, um, you, you know, you've done some, you're, you've got an interesting um, background uh, focusing on the intersection of neurobiology and spirituality. And I know some of this plays into it, but how is it different? What's unique about that? What's different between your intersect the studies you're doing with regard to neurobiology and spirituality? So, um, so just just to be clear, I'm not doing any research on this. Right okay, now, right. I, this is just a very very strong interest in me. Um, I, yeah, I mean, I think it. You know, I think it goes back to. You know, back in, you know, when I was growing up in the 70s, which is right after the 60s, psychology in the 60s was, when I look back on it, it's sort of crazy. I mean, it was all like, oh, let's see if ESP is real and, you know, and, and <laughs> spiritual and levels of consciousness and tapping the unknown. And, and sure. I think when I grew up, uh, I was getting sort of the lingering edge of that. And, and so when I went to college, I still had these ideas of like, is ESP really true? And, and, and I think what it does, what it, what I came with that was more like, what is, you know, feelings of fantasticness, like what is fantastic about the human mind and the potential of the human mind. And then that, you know, and that ties into spirituality and, you know, and, and, and some, and some people's beliefs and souls and, and, um, and more like sort of hardcore spiritual concepts. It's all sort of a little bit of a continuum there. And I think I've always been really fascinated about, well, how does this all work, right? Um, as a biologically minded person, you know, I'm grounded in substance and molecules and <laughs> neurons. And, and so, but that became a really nice intersection because for me, any sort of perceptual experience, I feel this, I believe this, I see this, that's neural activity. And so the brain has always been this, this intersection between sort of the hardcore grounded bio biology and these sort of mentalistic, maybe even spiritual components of what could possibly be. Uh, but by trying to understand the brain, I can tell you what is possible. Um, and that's kind of the avenue and the pathway that I've taken. So I've always been really interested in this kind of intersection with neuroscience. What do you think it is that has inspired this renaissance of research? You know, the, it going from this like schedule one controlled substance to, you know, Harvard University, Johns Hopkins, having whole <laughs> labs dedicated to it. Yeah. Um, you know, part of me is like, I don't know <laughs> what, this is really weird. You know, uh, 15 years ago, if you told me that marijuana was going to be legalized and, you know, I would be like, you gotta be kidding. That's just ridiculous. 
But, you know, even 20 years ago, if you told me that cigarettes would be almost entirely banned in our society, I would have been like, you're crazy. That never would have happened. So uh, in a lot of ways, this is sort of like an amazing uh, explosion of interest that kind of came out of nowhere. But I will say that I, I, I think as a society, we've always had this sort of fascinating interest with the mind and the potential of the mind and hallucinogens and maybe I can take a pill and it can tap into all these unexplored powers that I might have or human potentials. And, um, and, you know, and drugs like LSD have always been sort of like, Oh, have you tried it? Have you haven't tried it? And even though the, the amount of people trying it in the eighties went substantially down, um, I think it's always had this sort of like, you know, mysticism and mythology around it that has always kept it really interesting. I think in the last few years, um, it's just sort of the anecdotal evidence has started to really culminate. You know, people that are sort of exploring on their own using illegal drugs um, are coming up with a lot of anecdotal stories that eventually when they build up enough, they do catch the attention of researchers that start to think, well, maybe there's actually something there, right? So this is what happened in the 1990s with marijuana. I mean, people, lots of people have been using marijuana for years before then, but it was really in the 1990s when there was this culmination of anecdotal evidence of, oh, I use it for nausea, I use it for pain, I use it for this, I use it for that. And, uh, and then a few breakthroughs in, in the neuroscience of uh, THC that, uh, that sort of blended together and it kind of exploded, right? Anytime where we might see something and see a benefit that it might have for our society, that's when uh, you're going to get an explosion of, of, of science to sort of explore those. Do you, Peter, do you think there's, um, aside from Oregon being a very, on the whole, progressive place, is there anything unique about Oregon that would have us be the first to legalize this or be a pioneer in this area? Um. I think um, being sort of progressively minded is probably the biggest thing. Um, to be honest, I think psilocybin mushrooms do grow around here a lot. <laughs> so that might be part of it. <laughs> probably, probably not on our dry side, but on the, on the wet side. Um, but um, no, I mean, I don't think it's necessarily anything in particular. Um, I don't think we're necessarily more spiritual or more exploratory or more open-minded or anything necessarily than other states. Uh, but I think it's that, but I think Pacific Northwest has that sort of progressive, let's break down the rules. Um, why should we be constrained this way? That like that kind of like adventurous attitude right. um, is definitely helpful in, in, in this kind of mode. Well, I know, Go ahead, Laura. Well, I was just going to ask if you could explain the difference between microdosing and full-blown trips. I, I've heard that some people dosing. just take it every day. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so most. So, okay. So, most of this research on um, psilocybin is uh, giving people sort of a full dose, so they are fully intoxicated. They feel the effects. They hallucinate. They have that hopefully they're having a mystical experience. Whereas microdosing is where you're taking a much smaller amount and, um, and, and therefore you're having very, very mild or very, very weak effects. Uh, some people even suggest having no effects 
uh, but you're still taking a little bit, right? So there's no rule of thumb about how small of a dose it is to be technically microdosing. Uh, but typically people talk about like a 10th of the dose is kind of a rule of thumb about it. And, and the idea for people microdosing is that you could get benefits of taking a very, very small amount of this and still be able to live your life, right? Um, if you're taking a full dose, a full typical dose of psilocybin or LSD, it is incredibly <laughs> you are not going to be making dinner or you know, helping the kids with their homework or doing your job while you're in this very hallucinatory state. But with microdosing, the idea behind that is you could have a very, very mild effect and still be able to like, you know, do homework with the kids and, and make dinner and, um, and, and do your job for work. Um, the hope is that by microdosing, every day every or dosing every day or every three days or maybe once a week that you are actually getting the benefits that um, that we can see with larger single doses but you're doing it as a smaller more consistent manner peter we are running out of uh zoom time here uh is there anything uh that we might have overlooked or something you want to uh, discuss to our listeners um, so I guess, you know, I, I guess I, I'm, I'm always a little cautious. I'm always like, you know, when you talk about drugs, uh, I think the fear that I always have, no matter what I personally believe or professionally believe the research is showing is I'm always afraid of somebody taking that like, all right, let's go. <laughs> right. <laughs> Woo. Buy me a bag. <laughs> um, well, that's was the purpose of our podcast. I thought <laughs> I'm just, right. just kidding, right. listeners. Right. No, who's who's advertising on the show? <laughs> right. So I always want. I always say at the end, you know, people should be really cautious. Um, I think one of the things you really have to understand is first understand your own person um, before you dive into the world of psychedelics. Um, psychedelics isn't for everybody, right? Uh, there's some evidence to indicate that people that do have bad trips or people that have um, that may have long lasting effects. Um, it may have a predisposition, right? So anybody that has, you know, a really weird uncle Bob, that's a little bit psychotic, um, or they feel like they own, they, them themselves have a little bit of a tenuous touch on reality, right? Know yourself and maybe you shouldn't be somebody that's going into the world of psychedelics. Um, the other thing I always want to caution is, uh, know your dose. Um, any sort of deleterious effects, like slipping into a bad trip, um, one of the biggest reasons why is people take more than they should have. And they feel like they're out of control and that immediately snaps into a panic. But the third thing I want to add is another thing that often leads to deleterious effects, even for something like psilocybin that has really low toxicity, it's really unlikely you'll overdose or uh, um, but if you mix it with other drugs, all bets are off. You really, you really have to be cautious when you mix drugs together, right? So if you're, if it's Saturday night and you're having a few beers and the few beers leads to a couple of hits of marijuana, and then somebody shows up with a bag of psilocybin, maybe don't do that, right? If you want to do the psilocybin, just only do that, right? 
um, mixing is always something that you're that we scientists really can't predict how things are going to interact with each other. And so consumers have to be really cautious about mixing drugs together. Well, Peter, thank you for taking taking the time. We will uh, know shortly here whether uh, we're entering a new world of uh, research and exploration. Yeah, I mean, I will say uh, the research is really promising. We do we do need a lot more research. Uh, part of me is excited about referendums like this because this public pressure tends to open up doorways, doorways for research, right? Right now, most of the research on psychedelics is not in America. Mm. Almost all of it is in Europe right now. And it would be really nice to have the gates opened up so that universities all around can do a lot more of the psychedelic research because it is actually a really exciting and promising avenue. Well, given what you said about uh, the abundance of psilocybin in Oregon, there is actually a lot of research going on. It's just not being officially recognized right now. Absolutely, absolutely, right? Uh, right. Anecdotes, right? Uh, they tell you something, right? So, right, sure. Yeah. Well, Peter, thank you for your time. Yeah, thank you for your time. This has been the Ben Don't Break podcast. I appreciate you listening.